You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 10th of November. This week, we're going to talk about the new government's first budget and how people in Sweden have reacted to it. We'll discuss Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson's trip to Turkey and whether it has brought Sweden any closer to NATO accession. We'll also talk about the high-profile trial of the terror suspect who killed a psychiatric care coordinator and planned to murder the Centre Party leader Annie Love on Gotland this summer. And finally, as Sweden moves to make it harder to become a citizen, we'll end with a quiz to find out if our regular panellists have what it takes to pass a mock citizenship test. I'm Paul Mahoney and with me today are James Savage in Stockholm and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmo. Are you all good? Yep. Yes. Yes. Good, good. You looking forward to the test? Uh, apprehensive. I'm a little worried. <laughs> uh, before uh, we get into the news, I read uh, an article of yours, Richard, recently where you talked about when and how you should give a speech or a toast in Sweden. And it struck me that even after more than two decades here, it's one of the few things that still makes me feel like I've landed here from Mars. And in the article, you dig into different social occasions that call for different kinds of speeches like dinners, weddings, birthday parties and work events. And we're not going to go through everything. We'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to read more. But can you give any examples of when you've encountered Swedish speech culture that can help us understand what to expect and what's expected of us? The time when the difference between what, I, what we're used to in the UK and Swedish speech culture that, that struck me the most was at our wedding when we got married because all of the Brits came with their ideas of how you give a speech and all the Swedes came with theirs. And the difference, I suppose, in Sweden is that almost everyone makes a speech. There are a lot of speeches, so they all have to be really quite short And what happened at my wedding is that the Brits kind of all wanted to speak, but then they gave these incredibly long, attempting to be funny, kind of British-style best man speeches. So it went on until... I mean, the band hardly had, hardly had time to play. It was, a, it was, in a way, it was a disaster, and we ended up having to kind of usher people off and kind of stop them going on and um, talking as much as, as they did. But I based my article a lot on a book by the late great writer on uh, Swedish etiquette, who's Magdalena Ribbing, who I think we've mentioned before because she was absolutely wonderful and she said that a speech in Sweden does not need to be funny which in the UK it would and it does not need to have a twist or be original but it must spring from the personality of the speaker and then she says so long as it comes from the heart of a speaker a speech can lack form and structure it will still be a speech and that's something that I really notice when you see speeches here they can be incredibly heartfelt and in a way it's, it's a a contradiction because you think of Swedes as being really 
reserved. But when they make speeches, that's the time when you when you kind of drop that and you put that aside and you go, you know, whatever your name is, you've been the best work colleague I've ever had. You've always been there for me. And people always, they almost start crying. And you're like, oh my God. That was the other thing that was a bit weird at the wedding, actually, because the Brits saw what the Swedes were doing and then tried to do the same thing. And it's actually really hard to get it right. So, so people were saying to kind of stuff, you're like, no, nah, that's terrible. Please, please <laughs> shut up. This is too embarrassing. People were sort of trying to be heartfelt and it just didn't work. That's the time that it really struck me the difference. I mean, I thought I, when, I, when I had my wedding, I thought it was quite nice because some of the British people took it to their hearts. You know, they were, they were, they were, they were and, and, and people from other countries, you know, we, if someone, if they can do a speech, then I can do a speech as well. And they sort of, there were quite a few people who just said, well, you know, if, if this is the tradition we're following, then we'll do, we'll, we'll do another speech, not just a best man, you know, and that was quite nice. Mm. I have a really nice memory from your wedding, which was when? It was a long time ago now. Oh, God, it was about 14 years ago, I think. Where your father-in-law stood up and he said, one woman on either side of him, and he said, this is my wife and this is my (laughs) ex-wife. And then they, and then the three of them sang a song together. <laughs> that's so sweet. It was so cute. It was so cute. <laughs> it was like Bjorn and his wives. It was wonderful. <laughs> well, they call the Anna Frida Nagneta. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> Oh, that would should, have been a touch. Should we, should we move on? On, on Tuesday, um, Sweden's new finance minister, Elisabeth uh, Svantesson, picked up a copy of the new government's first budget. And in line with tradition, she made the short walk from the finance ministry to the parliament, surrounded by throngs of journalists and photographers. And she was also trailed by Greenpeace protesters, angered by the government's climate policy. And Greenpeace is not alone. Several groups and climate researchers have commented this week that Sweden's budget priorities mean the country won't be able to meet its climate goals for 20 and we discussed parts of the budget last week relating to climate, energy bill subsidies and fuel prices. So we're not going to dwell too long on the rumblings of discontent from across the spectrum with coalition supporters, for example, arguing that the government is not doing enough to combat high electricity and fuel costs. But the general consensus this week from all sides is that the government has not delivered on pre-election promises. It's worth mentioning that Elizabeth Svantesson said the government wasn't in a position to deliver on some of its promises because of the precarious economic conditions. Although, as the opposition was quick to point out, we did know about this before the election, that tough times were coming. Anyway, aside from the ones we've already mentioned, Becky, what other election promises has the government not delivered on? One of the big ones is income tax cuts. So the moderates are the ruling party. They're one of the one of the coalition parties and the prime minister is from the moderates. And during the election campaign, they had promised to spend 30 billion kroner on income tax cuts and reduced taxes on pensions. And there are income tax cuts in the new budget, but only for people over the age of 65 who will continue to work past retirement age. And that's only going to affect about 400,000 people. And then another big thing that the moderates had promised was cutting taxes on investment saving accounts or ISK accounts. So they were they were kind of pledging that any savings of up to 300,000 kroner would not be taxed if they were in these special accounts. 
um, and that's not been that's not in this budget either. And also this this mortgage repayment requirements. This is amorteringskravet. The moderates and the Christian Democrats and the Sweden Democrats all kind of promised before the election that they would pause this requirement so you can just pay off the interest on your mortgage. And they have not included that in the budget, but that is because I think it was the Finansinspektionen, the finance inspectorate, basically came out and said it was a bad idea. And they, they decided that it was against the central bank's measures that they're implementing to combat inflation. And one thing they did, they announced, I think it was the day before the budget, was that they were removing a climate bonus to stimulate the purchase of electric vehicles. Was that a surprise? It's a real surprise. I mean, they sprung it on the car industry with one day's notice, which meant that yesterday, it means that, you know, all of the big car people have been bringing in electric cars to sell, assuming this will be in the place. And then they gave them one day's notice. They're also spending loads of money on uh, on improving infrastructure for charging posts and stuff like that. So on the one hand, they're saying we will make infrastructure better so that it's more attractive to have an electric car. But we're not going to have this bonus, so your electric car is going to cost you more money. It's also a tax rate in some ways, because the moreless bonus system was set up to be revenue neutral. So you take the money mm. from heavy taxes on polluting cars and give it to people buying electric cars. So they've kept the tax on the polluting cars and instead kept it themselves. So it could also have been mm. something they thought we've got still got a hole in the budget. Let's just do that. Yeah. And what are the main priorities in the budget that we haven't spoken about yet? Well, we've spoken about fuel prices, but it's worth it's worth mentioning there that they are cutting taxes, but it will be a very small, make a very small difference to people's actual fuel costs, about one kroner at the, at the pump per litre. So, and, it, and it's still costing an awful lot of money, 6.84 billion. They're spending a bit more on criminal justice, 1.43 billion, but seeing how much they've um, so much emphasis they've placed on criminal justice during the election campaign. That's maybe not very much. An extra six billion to municipalities and regions. Now, many municipalities and regions say they're on their knees and, you know, because they they account for a very large amount of the spending in Sweden. A lot of, a lot of government is devolved to the municipalities and regions. And so six billion is not enough. They are also retaining the higher level of unemployment insurance. Now, this was very much a Sweden Democrat priority and something the moderates fundamentally don't like. But the Sweden Democrats are very powerful, as we know, in this government. And this was the higher level of um, unemployment insurance that was instituted during the pandemic. And it was supposed to be temporary, and now it's being made permanent. And that is costing 5.8 billion. An extra 5 billion on defence spending, as we've you know, spoken about, Sweden is in a process of uh, rearming. So it's 5 billion for defence and about just over half a billion, 0.57 billion for the migration agency and migration court. Now, this is super important. It's extra staffing uh, due to the flow of refugees from Ukraine and more, more resources for the courts to speed up appeals processes, which can take an awfully long time, and more money for the re repatriation of people who don't have the right to be in Sweden. Now, whether this will be enough to speed up the process sufficiently, we've, we've spoken about the problems that people with work permits have in getting their work permits um, approved in time and the problems that, that causes, for instance, is what is one of many, many problems. Whether that will be enough is, um, well, we'll We'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Mm. I'll just go back to the to the fuel prices um, just for a moment. There's a news story this week that Sweden's biggest Facebook group, which is called Brensle Uproret, what would you call that? The fuel protests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's got like what six hundred thousand members, and the head of this group has suggested that they may be about to start their own political party, like a petrol party in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. It could work. I mean, we've seen, we've seen protest parties come up before for all sorts of different subjects, and I, I doubt this that any such party would last particularly long, but 
could last long enough to cost some parties, particularly on the right, some votes, or maybe cost the Social Democrats some votes as well, maybe even the Sweden Democrats. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you could definitely see a, a, a situation, particularly now the Sweden Democrats position as a party of protest is curtailed by the fact that they are a, a support party for the government. You know, this, this gives a, an opening for a protest party like Brenslo Brurut to potentially shave some votes off if even they wouldn't come into parliament. I mean, have you been or have you looked at what they're writing on that page at the moment? They are so angry with the government. I mean, there, there, there was some guy who was going, well, we, we should call it Yimmy prices now, because uh, which is Yimmy Orkison prices. He's to blame. He promised to bring down fuel prices and now they're Yimmy prices. It's on his tables. They're really angry with not getting 10 kroner at the pump within days of the election. Yeah, I mean, I think the chances of them getting into parliament because we're not going to we're most likely we're not going to have an election for another four years now but i mean there's european mm. parliament elections in 2024 if fuel prices are still an issue by then you know that's that's only a year a year and a bit away so yeah there's definitely there's precedent there i mean the pirate party got into europe and the, a party called unilistan anti-eu party could happen definitely you could certainly see them getting into the european parliament okay i will leave the budget there for now but if you're interested in learning more we've got loads of articles about it on the site that we'll uh, link to in the notes let's talk now about the trial of theodore engstrom the man charged with terrorism for the murder on gotland this past summer of the psychiatric care coordinator ingmarie wieselgren and the planned murder of the center party leader Annie Love. What do we know about Engstrom and why he targeted Ingmarie Wieselgen and Annie Love? Well, he's uh, 33 and he's got a background in the neo-Nazi Nordic resistance movement that he was really involved in up to quite recently. And But he's also suffered really serious psychiatric problems for a decade, he said, in court. So in court yesterday, he said he'd spent 10 years in what he called a, as a spurk poiker, a ghost boy, locked in what he called a spurk burr, a ghost cage, which, which he said was actually his, his parents' house. So he's been basically living with his parents and suffering mental health issues for, for, for 10 years or something. So he, he's got sort of two motives, really. So there's one motive, which is very precise, which is against the psychiatric care system in Sweden, who he feels has completely mistreated him and not given him the help he needed. But he's also got political motive, you know, linked to his neo-Nazi background. So the police looked back at what he'd been talking about. And he, I think he'd written that his big heroes are Anders Bering Breivik in Norway and um, Peter Mangs here in Malmo, who both sort of racist terrorists. In the prosecution, there's and quite a lot's come out it's in that he I think he brought a bow and arrow and a sword to Almadolin as well that was in his tent and he didn't take out as well as Annie Luf he was also targeting Hannah Kroena who's the CEO of Sweden's TV broadcaster SVT so he had three chief targets and in court, he said that he saw what he'd done as a Sargo Poikas Yeltador, the, the heroic act of a fairy tale boy. And he said he didn't regret it. He said that he felt he needed to strike at Swedish society and he had to aim somewhere. He's quite vague in court. And Annie Love appeared in court as a witness. What did she have to say? Yeah, I mean, you can really tell how it's affected her. I wouldn't be surprised if this was part of the reason that she's chosen to step down from being centre party leader. Uh, she said that she had avoided giving speeches to crowds during the summer and during the election campaign. When she did take part in Stockholm Pride, she was surrounded by bodyguards. She checks the hands of strangers approaching her to make sure they're not carrying a knife or a weapon. 
she said in court that she has been afraid for, of letting her kids play outside in the garden without an adult watching them. She doesn't open letters at home. She avoids big groups of people. Just you can really tell that this is she's changed her behavior in a way so she's not putting herself in danger or she feels like she's in danger. It's just, yeah. One thing I hadn't realized is how close she was to what happens because uh, I remember from Alma Darlin, she was on that square and about to go up on stage, I think at the express and stage and talk. And the murder happened maybe just 10 meters away, 20 meters away. And then her bodyguards rushed her into the house behind. And she was saying in court that they were looking out the window and her aides could see the blood from the stabbing just outside the window where they were. And they stayed in the Donetska house and, and um, Annie Luf was like kept on the far other side of the room in case there were other other terrorists. So it must have been absolutely terrifying. The court will continue to hear witnesses until next Tuesday, the 15th, and we'll bring you information about the outcome when we get it. While Elizabeth Svantesson was delivering the budget on Tuesday, the Prime Minister made a visit to Ankara to meet Turkey's President Erdogan in a bid to smooth relations and encourage Turkey to ratify Sweden's NATO application. I spoke to Paul Levine, Director of Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, to find out how Turkey's President Erdogan is reacting to the new Swedish government's attempts to convince Turkey to ratify the NATO application. Let's listen now to some of what he had to say. Turkey has long had issues with how other NATO allies and other European countries have um, not sort of... uh, um, accepted Turkey's perception of various Kurdish militias as a security threat to Turkey. So Turkey has long been pushing this agenda uh, with little success. And now all of a sudden, uh, when Sweden applies for membership in NATO, they have some leverage. Uh, and this is something that a lot of Turks care about, uh, not just Erdogan supporters. It's sort of you know bipartisan consensus that the PKK is uh, is a, a red flag to many Turks, and they don't understand why uh, you know Kurds in Sweden can wave PKK flags publicly. Why is that allowed? So that means that this issue works well uh, in domestic politics. Erdogan is coming up to elections uh, next year. He's not doing well in polls. The economy is is really bad. Uh, and this is an issue that's popular and that he can, you know, use as not, uh, you know, a great uh, cost to himself. But there are two sort of uh, ways that this could play out in domestic politics in Turkey. One is that Erdogan is serious about wanting concessions and that if Sweden sort of responds the way that it has been doing, that Erdogan can then say, well, look, we asked for, uh, and this is what Erdogan you know, publicly says, we want to be able to show our voters that we uh, you know, pressured Sweden to make serious efforts to uh, respond to the terrorism threat, right? And then he can declare a diplomacy a diplomatic victory, open up Sweden for a NATO uh, accession. And that's sort of what the Swedish government has been banking on. But there's another possible interpretation, and that is that Erdogan doesn't want concessions. He or he's not interested in the content. He wants to drag out the negotiation. And in that case, it doesn't matter what Sweden does. And uh, looking at how Erdogan two days ago uh, responded to the quite significant moves that the Swedish government has been made, I mean, 
you're, I'm beginning to lean that they're towards this interpretation that right now he just wants to drag it out. Looking at the press conference the other day, it, it looked like Swedish Prime Minister Christensen was bending over backwards to, to please Erdogan. Are you surprised at how far Sweden has gone? I am a little bit. I mean, the the, pre- the previous government, the social democratic government, also surprised, I think, many in how far it went. It it abandoned, of course, a longstanding NATO opposition, but also made this trilateral agreement with Turkey that was that went quite quite far and was a departure uh, in how uh, the, the the government had uh, viewed, for example, these Kurdish militias that we spoke about in in Syria. That was a big change. This government uh, has pursued, continued on this same path, but it has done so with greater vigor. And Ulf on the prime minister, he's really bet on uh, the fact that if he makes, you know, sort of a public show of really taking Turkish concerns seriously, then that will make a difference. And, you know, in some respects, uh, it, it was, I think, to many Swedes, almost humiliating to see how uh, the Swedish prime minister toned down any criticism and emphasized that Sweden understands Turkish national security concerns. It's not an unreasonable request from the Turkish point of view, but it's also, it is an unpleasant situation. Paul Levine there from Stockholm University. And if you want to find out more of what he had to say, we've written up a longer version of the interview, which you can find on the site and we'll link to it in the notes. James, how have Swedish commentators reacted to the visit? (laughs) With a bit of a cringe, I would say, is the general consensus. It really doesn't matter what side of politics you're from. Um, I think most of the Swedish commentators are saying, uh, are describing Sweden's actions, Ulf Kristersson's appearance in Turkey as crawling, crawling for Erdogan. Susanna Kierkegaard in Aston Blada, which is on the left side of politics, called it undignified crawling. She said that Kristersson's shown he'll go further and further to satisfy Turkey and the, the, the Turkish despot, as she calls him. And frankly... Even on the right of Swedish politics, commentators on the right have also winced at this spectacle of Christoshon in Ankara just giving more and more to Erdogan to, to try and get the NATO membership through. I think the difference between the right and the left here is that on the right, there's a, you know, a very long standing wish to get into NATO. And so it's a question of the commentators are sort of effectively saying, well, we've just got to grit our teeth and grin and bear it and wait for, wait for this sad episode to pass and then we'll be in NATO and everything will be fine. So, you know, if, if you see um, Ole Linnaeus in um, Sudsvenskan, which is more on the sort of right of, of Swedish politics, of the liberal right, he said, well, you know, both parties knew that sucking up to Erdogan would be necessary. But then, you know, the question is how far the Swedish government is prepared to go. But yeah, this is not being viewed with anything other than great discomfort by pretty much everybody. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Watching it. The government and the Sweden Democrats have said they want to introduce some sort of test on Swedish society and culture for prospective citizens. We don't know what it's going to look like yet, but given that so much of what Sweden is doing at the moment is inspired by Denmark, it's likely to be similar to the tests they have on the other side of the Ödesund Bridge. I saw that the editorial team created a test for readers this week that we link to in the notes so you can see how likely you would be to get a Swedish passport. And you had to get 16 answers out of 20 right to pass. And I just about made it, which is why I'm still here today, I think. <laughs> I did not. I got 15. <laughs> I got 16 and that was that was oh, just on the wire. I thought it would be a good idea to put our panellists through their paces. So I've created a citizenship test just for you lot. And I've narrowed it down to 10 questions. And it's also based on the kinds of things they ask in Denmark. So you're going to have to get at least eight questions right to pass out of the podcast if you don't pass and we'll, we'll look for we'll look for a Swede to replace you because that's how things are going to be done around here. I guess I'm going to find out now whether my degree in Scandinavian studies was worth the money. <laughs> well, luckily for you, I'm treating the three of you as a single organism, so you are allowed to confer. However, you are also allowed to go it alone if you don't agree with the consensus, although I do warn you that deviating from the consensus could in itself result in some sort of punishment. Yeah. I'm not sure yet. This is Sweden. We're making it up as we go along. Okay, everyone clear? Yes. Any final requests? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go. Oh, I wish you could see the smile on Paul's face right now. He's enjoying this too much. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready to to roll. And this is going to be a lot of fun. Question one. Which of the following do Sweden's municipalities have primary responsibility for? Public transport, schools, healthcare. Schools. Pu- public transport and healthcare are both regions. Yeah, I go with yeah. James. I stand with James. I stand with James you too. You stand with James. <laughs> that is correct. Sweden's municipalities are responsible for areas including schools, Swedish immigrants classes, uh, social services and elderly care. Public transport and healthcare, as Richard said, are run by the regions, of which there are 21. And I hope you know how many municipalities there are, because I may or may not ask you that later. (laughs) Question two. Which Swedish author wrote the book Brent Barn, or A Burnt Child, in its English translation? Was it Stieg Larsson, Stieg Klaasson, Stieg Dagerman? Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea, but I'm going to guess Deeg Dogerman. But he's like a kind of journalist, isn't he? I have never even heard of that book. <laughs> I, I, I haven't either, and I honestly haven't even... Nor have I, but I think Stieg Larsson... I think neither Stieg Larsson... Neither Stieg Larsson nor Stieg Larsson. And what was the other one? What was the, the middle one? The one that you guessed, you mean? <laughs> yeah, so we had Stieg Larsson, Stieg Klaasson, Stieg Dogerman. Let's just go for Dogerman. I think Dogerman. Let's go for, I'm, I'm guessing guess. Dogerman. I have no idea. I'm so, I feel so... I was just like such, such, such a philistine. Richard is some kind of genius. Brent Barn is Stieg Dogerman's best-known novel. It came out in 1948 and has been translated into 20 languages. And if the government goes ahead with its plans for a state-sanctioned cultural canon, 
this book is probably a strong contender for inclusion. And Sweden has two Stig Larssons, as Richard was kind of touching on there. There's the one who wrote the Millennium Trilogy, whose name is spelt S-T-I-E-G. But the Stigs we're dealing with here are S-T-I-G Stigs. And this Stig Larsson is one of Sweden's most respected writers and is one of 100 or so artists and writers who are recipients of a guaranteed income from the state, a system that incidentally is in the process of being phased out. Uh, Stig Larsson was a much-loved writer, often referred to as Slot and he was extremely prolific and published 88 books before his death in 2008. Question three. That's two out of two. You're doing, you're doing great. Uh, in what year did Sweden stop classifying homosexuality as a mental illness? Was it 1985, 1979, 1963? Oh, it, was, it wasn't 1963 because it was the, the person who did it was Barbara Westerholm, right? And she right, was the yes. head of the she was the head of Socialstyrelsen, the yes. social agency. And she and she was until until the election, she was a Liberal MP as well. Mm. Um, and you know, well into her eighties. I want to say that it was ninety. It was it's either nineteen seventy nine or the ninety or nineteen eighty, whatever it was. You said nineteen eighty five. I want to say it was 1979. I remember the the pictures. She, it, they're all black and white. It looks like a long time ago. Mm. Um, but I'm I don't know. Does either of you have a? I'm leaning towards 79 as well, but I don't know if that's just kind of gut feeling. <laughs> I'm absolutely clueless in this, but I'm willing to join the consensus on this one. I mean, because there, 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 there were lots of protests where 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 where, where gay people sort of occupied Social Sturison mm. and um and and they sort of protested to her. And didn't she, they call in sick? They would all call into their office and go, "I'm sick. <laughs> I've got, the, I've got the gay." <laughs> you've got, you've got a lot of the background that I was going to talk about so afterwards. Have a terrible can, update. We, have, can we get a bonus look, point for knowing all of this, but not the exact year? Like, I'm a history Absolutely graduate. I'm not. terrible at dates. Um, let's go for seventy-nine. Uh, let's go for seventy-nine know, and yeah. see. Let's let's get seventy-nine is correct. Oh, <laughs> So you've you've talked. I've I've got to read out what my notes here. Um, but you've talked about a lot of us. So a group of protesters staged a demonstration at the offices of the National Board of Health and Welfare, Socialstyrelsen, in 1979, and said that they wouldn't leave until homosexuality was removed from the official list of mental illnesses. Some of the protesters, as you said, called in sick to work to participate in the protest, and one of them even received sick pay from her employer because she was deemed to be suffering from lesbianism at the time. Uh, but the new head of the health board, she was she was new in the job at the time, Barbara Westerholm, as you said, James, uh, she was moved by their stories and took swift action to push through a reform and homosexuality was removed from the list of mental illnesses just a few weeks later. Three out of three, you are well on your way to becoming full-blown Swedes. Question four, how many municipalities are there in Sweden? You're going to give us some options, right? Yeah. I'll give you some I options. I have a number in my head, and if you say it, I'm going to go for it straight away. Okay. Okay. 180? 180! <laughs> uh, 240? Or 290? Okay, none of those numbers was the number in my head. <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling somewhere around 300, so I want to say 290. Yeah, I, yeah, I think 290. I think, I think 290. You're going, you're going with that? You're going uh, with 290? Final answer? Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Go are we doing well? You're doing very, very I well. I had 310 in my head. Okay, yeah, that was, that was close. close. <laughs> that's still not God, right. you're, you're very, you're very impressive. I have well, to if say. we could sort of get apply for joint citizenship, we'd be doing really well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Question five. What year did Carl XVI Gustav become Sweden's king? Was it 1973, 1969, 1979? Oh, easy. It's his 50th jubilee next year, isn't it? Uh, So it's 73. Yeah. Yeah, Correct. Uh, How old was he at the time? James, you know lots of royal stuff. How old was he at the time? He was young, he was in his 20s, but I don't know, 20-something? Yeah, he was 27. Um, do you have any other interesting things people should know about the King of Sweden? I really don't know anything about monarchy. It's not my uh, special subject. He became crown prince. His dad died in a plane accident in the Öresund. So he did not inherit the crown from his dad. He inherited it from his grand- like directly from his granddad. I mean, uh, Carl Gustav was 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 a small child. He was in, he was I think he was under two years old when yeah. his um, when his father died. So he he lived his whole upbringing as the direct heir to the throne. There was a point at which when the Swedish government reformed the constitution and removed everybody from the line of succession in the in the later in the 70s, they removed everybody in the line of succession except for Carl Gustav and any offspring, which at that point he didn't have. So there was a there was a there was a point at which the entire existence of the Swedish monarchy rested on Carl Gustav surviving and having children. So, um, which was not not a coincidence. This was this was done at a, at a time when the Social Democrats were, were kind of uh, quite keen to re- to remove the monarchy or at least because uh, he, he was a bachelor when he became king, wasn't he? He he got married while he was king to Sylvia. Absolutely. Yeah, Indeed. I think that's quite unusual. Where did he meet Sylvia? Munich at the Olympics, was it? Yes, correct. She was some sort of hostess there, and he met her there. Yeah. She was some sort of what? It feels like hostess. It feels like mm. Olympics are a good place for monarchs to meet their their partners because that's what happened with the Danish crown prince as well. He met Mary at the Sydney Olympics in like a dive so bar. He did. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, with a, I used to live with an Australian in uh, in in Copenhagen. She's like, yeah, I've been to that bar. It's like not nice. <laughs> that's brilliant yeah very good question six when is sweden's national day may 17th june 6th june 21st june 6th june 6th yeah (laughs) why why june 6th gustav vasa came to march into stockholm plus it was the anniversary of some constitution in the 1800s yeah very good and it used to be and it's also the swedish flag day the day of the swedish flag Mm. and also it's the day where you eat an old dog's bark you yeah. eat your national dogs bark, Elsa. Your national day cake. <laughs> Which is like a princess torta with a Swedish flag on, right? Basically. Or something. Yeah. I think it's like f- strawberries and cream and yeah, very Swedish. Uh-huh. All right. All right. This is, this is too easy for you. Um, question, <laughs> question seven. Well, eh? Who was the starring actress in the Ingmar Bergman film Summer with Monica? Was it Harriet Anderson, Tuva Novotny, Ingrid Bergman? Oh, it was Harriet Anderson, right? What do you think? I think it was Harriet Anderson. Well, it was not not Tuva (laughs) Novotny. I've seen it. Harriet Anderson was one of Bergman's absolute um, favourite actresses and she she was in lots of his films. I don't know. I I don't... I'm just... If you think think you know... It wasn't Ingrid Ingrid Bergman. No, it wasn't Ingrid Bergman. Okay, well then we'll go with... We'll go with with James. I'll go with James as well. Correct. Released in 1953. I feel like James is carrying this quiz quite uh, significantly. <laughs> I have lived here longest out yeah. of the three I've of us. I've only been uh, here three years. Not even that. <laughs> I've been here 19, so I should be doing. I should be carrying it. 
Released in 1953, Summer with Monica caused a stir abroad for its depictions of nudity and was a major factor in the concept of Swedish sin. Harriet Anderson had a long working relationship with Ingmar Bergman that persisted long after they had a short romantic relationship around the time Summer with Monica was filmed. Um, can yeah. anyone name the Swedish cinematographer most associated with Bergman who won two Academy Awards? No. 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 Is that a question? Uh, it's, uh, it's not, no. It's I just, couldn't tell you what a cinematographer does, really, so that's not a very good start. He's the the photographer, basically the film film photographer, yeah. Uh, Stan Nyquist. By the way, if anyone's if anyone's planning to watch The Summer with Monica in the hope of filth, I mean, it's pretty tame. Filth by 1950s American standards, I think. Yeah. It's a few bottoms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think them, in, in, in the US there was a, like a... Somebody created a shorter version, which is like a 60-minute version, which contained all the bits that could be considered filth in the <laughs> 1950s. And loads of people went to see that in uh, like drive-in movie theaters. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, question eight. Who was Sweden's prime minister from 1946 to 1969? Was it Torge Erlander, Olof Palme, Torbjörn Feldin? It was Target Lander. Target Lander. Yeah, Target Lander. For a very, long, very long time. Long, it's like 20 years, was it? Yeah. I was waiting Mad. for you to say 1989, and then I would be like, right, if it is pre-1989, it's Olaf Palmer. If it's post-1989, it was not Olaf Palmer. <laughs> I was like, I know the cutoff point where Olaf Palmer ceased to be both Prime Minister well, no, no, and you also... don't, because it was 1986. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm wah, wah, I didn't say any of that. Sorry, <laughs> Becky loses a point. Close enough. Uh, no, you don't. Torge Erlander's 23 consecutive years in charge remain a world record among parliamentary democracies. He was extremely popular throughout his time in charge and in his final election... In uh, 1968, the Social Democrats received 50.1% of the vote. Question nine. How many members of parliament does Sweden have? 149, 249, 349. It's 349, isn't it, guys? Yeah, it's 175 plus 174. That's, yeah, 175 needed for majority. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. My, my maths aren't good enough to do that in my head, like, straight away. <laughs> Correct. In, uh, in 1971, Sweden abolished the bicameral system and replaced it with the single assembly we know and love today. But they also had the really, really bad idea of electing 350 members of parliament. And in the very next election in 1973, the two competing blocs received 175 MPs each, <laughs> which resulted in what became known as the Lottery Parliament of 1973 to 1976, as whenever parliament was unable to compromise... They had to draw lots. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> oh, I mean, my God. Duh. I mean, odd number, it's pretty basic. <laughs> uh, so unsurprisingly, they, they changed the rules to make sure it could never happen again. <laughs> You'd have thought that through the whole process of deciding how we're going to constitute this new parliament, someone would have struck up their hand and said, how about we have an odd number, guys? For such a process-driven country, it absolutely beggars belief. <laughs> Completely mad. Question, I've got nine out of nine. This is, I'm not, oh. I'm, I'm not, I'm not even enjoying this anymore. <laughs> Uh, what year did Sweden join the EU? Was it 1991, 1993 or 1995? Ooh. I think, I want to say 95. It wasn't 91, was it? I thought 1993, but I'll say 1995. Maybe 1993 was the referendum. Hang on, Carl Bilt was booted out in 94, wasn't he? And Carl Bilt was Prime Minister when Sweden joined. So it can't have been 95. 
Should we, I think maybe 93. I think maybe there was a referendum and then it took into a couple of years. Can I dissent and say Of course. Of course. Oh no. I think I think I'm going to lose. Oh, I think I think you're going to win. Final answer. 93 feels wrong. I'm going to go for 95 because that was my first. I want to stick with my gut here. No, I'm going to go. For, I'm actually going to go back to 91. 91. Becky and Richard, you are correct. Yay! Oh no. <laughs> James, you got nine out of ten. <laughs> oh, sugar. <laughs> Cripes, <laughs> crumbs. Oh, well done, everybody. Uh, that was that was uh, that was fun. <laughs> and I thought you were thought, thought you were all very impressive. Your um, your diplomas are in the post, James. Your diploma has uh, a little uh, you uh, one less star. Your one star one, one minor fault on my diploma. Never one mind. Fault, but I, yeah. I still I still get my citizenship then. You get your citizenship. Ah. You do. You do. But how has everybody's moral conduct been this week? Has it been good? So we do have to watch our moral conduct these days. I think, well. I think maybe maybe slightly brist under. Yeah, a definite brister in my moral conduct, but I, I I wouldn't want it any other way. All right, we're going to wrap up there for today. Thank you to everyone for listening, and a special thanks to our paying members who make this whole enterprise possible. Um, if you'd like to join and get unrestricted access to the local, you can find a discount for podcast listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. You'll also find links in the show notes to the articles we've discussed today. Thanks to Paul Levine for insights on Turkey. Our panellists today were Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again with a new episode of Sweden in Focus next Saturday. Until then, take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage. <laughs>